This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. All right, well, it's a new year, and it's time for a new series, um, and so we're talking about a new way of life, and we're going to be between now and the end of March, and we're going to take three months and walk through the three chapters of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and so today we're beginning in chapter 5, and we're going to look in verses 1 through 6, and so today and next Sunday, we're going to look at the, the Beatitudes, so we're going to walk through the first part of them today, the first four Beatitudes um, today, and we'll, we'll finish up the Beatitudes um, next, next Sunday morning. So Matthew chapter 5, um, and let's look this morning at verses 1 through 6, and if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. When he saw the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and after he had sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You can be seated. pray. Father, as we uh, come before your word, as we begin a new series today uh, in walking through the Sermon on the Mount, we we pray that that you would show us the glorious life that that you have invited us into. Um, As as we approach a a new year, we've all got we've all got dreams and and goals, uh, hopefully, and and of where we would like to see this this year go. But Lord, you have given us the path to true flourishing in this life. Uh, you, you teach us how it's meant to be lived, and, and you, you invite us to experience life under your gracious rule as a part of your kingdom. And so we pray that, that this, this, this new life, this kingdom way of living, will, will take root in our hearts and lives this year, and we we just dedicate this series to you, and we pray that as we dig into into your word over these next three months, um, that you would you would speak to us and move within our hearts and our living in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we pray it in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, many of you have maybe heard me tell the story about uh, being on a plane one time uh, with a lady and. We were, we were having a spiritual conversation, and she said something to the effect that, you know, well, you know, I just, I believe, I don't believe in the Jesus of, you know, hell and judgment and all that stuff. I just believe in the Jesus of the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> and I knew at that point, like, she had never read the Sermon on the, the Mount. 
but even a lot of people who have read it have read it wrongly. Uh, Even some people in church history that we would have a lot of respect for. For instance, the great reformer Martin Luther, who tended to kind of read the Bible through a pretty rigid prism of law and gospel, sort of saw Matthew 5 through 7 as kind of an impossible law to meet that simply makes us flee to the gospel. Uh, some of our uh, Anabaptist uh, forefathers uh, saw the, tended to see the Sermon on the Mount in isolation from the rest of Scripture. And so they took things from the Sermon on the Mount like, you know, we should never take any sort of an, an oath, you know, in court, or we should never serve in, in, in the military or, or in, 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 in combat. Um, there are even some who have, have taken sort of a, a certain eschatological perspective who have viewed the Sermon on the Mount as just simply that, something that's simply uh, for the future, something that's to, to be kind of lived out in some sort of a, a future kingdom. But the issue for us is what was in the mind of Christ when he spoke these words. What was the intention of Jesus for us when he originally spoke these words? You know, was this something that's simply for the the future that doesn't relate to us today? Um, Is this simply an impossible standard that we could never live up to just to make us flee to the gospel? Those are pretty important questions. And I would submit to you that what Jesus is actually doing in Matthew 5 through 7 is he is presenting us with a new way of life. A new way of life. Jesus is is presenting us with a vision of a whole new way of being. And it's not something that's just for the future. It is very much for now. He's presenting a vision of what life can be like when we come under his gracious kingdom rule as individuals or as a community together, as a church. Now, he begins the Sermon on the Mount with a series of sayings that begin with the word blessed that we call the, the, the Beatitudes. Um, and we're going to talk about the first part of them today. Before we do that, I want to look at a little bit of, of context. So, Jesus, of course, is born in Bethlehem. It's down near Jerusalem. We talk about that at Christmas. But Jesus was raised in the town of Nazareth, which is in the northern part of Israel, uh, not too far from the Sea of Galilee, but not actually right on the Sea of Galilee. But then when Jesus begins his public ministry as a young man, he moves from Nazareth to the city of Capernaum, which is right on the Sea of Galilee. And this area around the Sea of Galilee is surrounded by mountains. And so that's kind of what it, what it looks like. That's, that picture is taken from what we call the, the Mount of Beatitudes. Do we know that the Sermon on the Mount took place in that exact spot? No, but it, it almost certainly took place on one of the hills right outside of Capernaum, which is where that picture is, is, is taken. 
And so when we look at verse one of chapter five, the Bible tells us that when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, if you were to look at verse one, just in in isolation, you would tend to think that the Sermon on the Mount was just delivered to Jesus's inner circle of disciples. That's almost certainly not the case. Because when you come to the end of chapter seven, it says that the crowds were amazed at his teaching. And the implication there is that this is a a fairly large crowd. By the way, I've had the opportunity to read scripture and teach up in these hills outside of of Capernaum and the natural acoustics of that area are amazing. And so Jesus would have been able to speak to a very large crowd really without any kind of, of, um, the, the amplification is just natural in that area. And so he begins the Sermon on the Mount with these, this, this series of, of, of sayings that we call the Beatitudes. So Beatitudes comes from the Latin word beatus, but that word is a translation of the the Greek word makarios. And so if you're reading the the Greek New Testament, then the word that we translate as as blessed or blessed is really, it's the Greek word makarios. And really it has the meaning of happy or flourishing, okay? So we're going to look at we're going to look at it that way as we walk as we walk through them. Okay, so we're going to look at four of them this morning. The first one is happy or flourishing are those who understand their helplessness. If you're new today, you can take notes on your on your your bulletin as we we walk through. Happy or flourishing are those who understand their helplessness. So Jesus says in in verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So what does Jesus mean when he talks about the poor in spirit? It's kind of not a phrase that we would typically use today. What's What's he talking about? I love what New Testament scholar D.A. Carson says about being poor in spirit. Carson says, poverty of spirit is the personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. It is the conscious confession of unworth before God. In other words, to be poor in spirit is to understand that we are utterly helpless without God. You've heard the expression, God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> it's amazing how many people think that's actually in the Bible. <laughs> not only is that not in the Bible, but that is the opposite of what Jesus is teaching here. Jesus is teaching that we have to get to the point where we acknowledge that we cannot help ourselves, that we are utterly helpless without God. That's the whole point of one of the parables that Jesus tells, the the parable of the the Pharisee and the tax collector that we find in in Luke 18. Let's look at it. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So the Pharisee is like this kind of guy who's looked upon as very religious, 
very upstanding, very righteous. And the tax collector was the exact opposite of that. You know, he's irreligious, he's kind of a low life, that type of a guy. Well, Jesus says, verse 11, the Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So, what is the, what's the, what's the, what's the religious guy doing here? The Pharisee, this upstanding guy. He's, he's presenting his worth to God, right? What's the, what's the tax collector doing? He's presenting his unworth to God. He's saying, God, I, I, am, I don't deserve anything. And, 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 and I am utterly helpless without you. And I, and I, I am just, I'm just casting myself upon your mercy. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Again, D.A. Carson is on point when he says, we must come to God and acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy, emptying ourselves of our self-righteousness, moral self-esteem, and personal vainglory. Emptied of these things, we are ready for him to fill us. Amen. Emptied of these things, we are ready for him to fill us. And, And friends, that's where joy is. That's where flourishing is. That's where happiness is. When we get to the end of our rope and we say, Lord, you take the wheel. I can't do it. I'm utterly helpless without you. And that begins when we acknowledge that the only way that we can be saved is through the blood of Jesus and through his resurrection. It is so heartbreaking, the conversations that I've had with people throughout the course of my ministry. And I'm talking about people who weren't far away from from death and people who have been in church all of their lives. And who they've been in church, they've been in Sunday school, they should know better. But they've reached toward the end of their life and I'll have a conversation with them about, hey, where does your hope lie? What is your confidence that that you're going to be received into heaven and they respond by pointing to their worth. They respond by talking about themselves. They, they talk about the bad things that they haven't done and the good things that they have done. Nothing about Jesus. Nothing about the cross. Nothing about the blood of Jesus. Nothing about the resurrection of Christ. Heartbreaking. Because a genuine Christian is not going to respond that way. They're going to respond by pointing to what, what Christ has done. They're going to respond kind of like, like the, the hymn writer Augustus Topolity does in, in Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. We understand we are helpless without him. We are helpless to save ourselves. We cast ourselves purely on the mercy of Christ. Listen, we are helpless to live for the Lord without his grace. 
That's what it means to be poor in spirit, to to understand your own uh, helplessness before God. And then what does Jesus say about that? Again in verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. What does he mean by that? Does he just mean these people are gonna go to heaven when they die? Much more, much more than that. Jesus is saying, this is what it is like when you come under the gracious rule of God. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, that's what he means. He means to come under the the gracious rule and reign of God now. Jesus invites you into this life now. He says, you can come under, you can experience this life, what life is like when you put it under the gracious rule of God. You can experience that now. He's inviting us into this. What a message for for a new year. Happy or flourishing are those who understand their helplessness. Second, happy or flourishing are those who grieve. It's a paradoxical statement, isn't it? As, as, as much of these, many of these statements are in the Beatitudes. Happier flourishing are those who grieve. Now, when we think about g- grieving, um, we tend to think about um, maybe bereavement, the loss, maybe the loss of a loved one. Jesus says here in verse four, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. But what kind of mourning is he talking about? Is he just talking about sort of mourning a a human loss? Now listen, certainly when when we mourn a human loss, for instance, the loss of a loved one, it is absolutely true that the Holy Spirit comforts us in that loss. And it's also true that, that sometimes in those deep, dark valleys, it's then that we experience the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit just most acutely. And so that even, even in the midst of our sorrow, there's a deep joy that, that comes from knowing that the Lord is, is, is there and experiencing the Spirit's comfort. But I think in the context here, of, of verse four following on the heels of verse three that Jesus is, is talking, uh, he's talking about really a, a mourning and a grief and a sorrow for sin. I, I would agree with John Stott who says this, it is not the sorrow of bereavement to which Christ refers, but the sorrow of repentance This is the second stage of spiritual blessing. It is one thing to be spiritually poor and acknowledge it. It is another to grieve and to mourn over it. In other words, when when Jesus says blessed are those who, who, who mourn, he's first of all talking about a mourning for our own sins. 
a deep mourning, a deep grief for the sins in our, our lives. And he's, he's, he's talking about what the Apostle Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 7.10, when Paul says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. You see, when we have godly grief, that's not, that's not like a grief where somebody feels when they, they know that they've messed up and they've made a mess of their lives and they're sorry that they've made a mess. They're sorry for the mess that they're in. Or they, they're sorry that they got caught. <laughs> that's, that's not godly grief, right? And anybody can have that. But when you, but when you love the Lord, there's a, there's a mourning there's a grief in, in your life when, for, for your sins because you know that your, your sins have brought pain to the one who loves you and who has given himself for you. That's, that's, that's godly grief. That's godly uh, mourning over our own sins. I think there's also a sense here when Christ says, blessed are, are, are they who, who, who mourn I think there's also a sense in which he's talking about those who grieve over the lostness of the world. When is the last time that, that you shed tears for people around the world who have little or no access to the gospel, who, who don't have the advantages that we have? spiritually or economically or anything else. And so they're living in situations of, of utter darkness. Have you, do, you, do you grieve? Do you, have a, do you have a heart, a mourning for people around the world with little or no access to the gospel? What about lost people in your own life? What about lost family members? Lost friends? When is the last time that you shed tears for, for people that you know that are in need of Christ? That's a healthy, that's a healthy mourning that we should have. And Jesus says here in, in verse four, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted again. I love what T.A. Carson says about this. There is no comfort or joy that can compare with what God gives to those who mourn. These people can exchange the sackcloth of mourning for the garment of praise, the ashes of grief for the oil of gladness. At the individual level, the mourner grieves over his sin because he sees how great is the offense to God, but he learns to trust Jesus as the one who has paid sin's ransom. And as he weeps for other people, he finds to his delight that God is answering his prayers. Very often, even working through him to untangle sin's knots and provide others with new birth. But even this great comfort will be surpassed. One day, God himself will wipe away all tears from the eyes of those who once mourned. Well, friends, there's coming a day when, when, when Christ re returns, when, when there, will, there will be no more tears. Revelation 21.4 says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. 
Third, happy or flourishing are the humble. Happy or flourishing are the humble. Let's look at verse five. Jesus says, blessed are the humble for they will inherit the earth. Now, traditionally, this word is translated as as meek. Sometimes it comes with a lot of baggage in modern English that's not, that's not there in this original word. Because we can think of meekness as sort of being kind of, you know, wallflower kind of type of person. Or even we can even equate meekness with, with weakness. And sometimes you hear that expression, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And almost uh, conjures up an image of Christ that's kind of, kind of weak or effeminate, which is not, was not true at all. You know, Jesus was the lion of the tribe of Judah and demons would tremble when he even approached and so but what it does mean what what this original word does mean is that it means humble and gentle which is not weakness it's strength it's strength it's much stronger (laughs) to be humble than to be arrogant to be gentle than to be harsh it because it's strength under control And so it means humble or gentle. And to the degree that these things are still virtues in our culture at all, it owes to it owes to the influence of Christianity in our culture, because in the ancient world and especially in the in the Greco-Roman world, the pagan world, the humility and gentleness were not considered virtues at all. As increasingly they are being discarded uh, today. And the way that people interact with one another. I mean, I see like some of the stuff that goes on on social media as people just kind of, you know, use the opportunity to kind of lash out and say things that they would never say like in person or whatever uh, to kind of put others down or um, to kind of prop themselves up and to present sort of an image on social media that, you know, hey, I've got the, you know, the perfect body or the perfect life or the perfect family or whatever. It's, it's all, it's presented as an image. Praise God, Jesus here has given us more than an image, right? Jesus doesn't give us an image of happiness and flourishing in the Sermon on the Mount. He actually tells us how we can walk into the path of happiness and, and, and flourishing, and, and he says that that is found through, not by boosting ourselves up and putting others down, it, it, it comes through humility. In other words, in the kingdom life, the way up is the way down. First Peter chapter five and, and, and verses six and seven. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. Wouldn't it be wonderful this year to be done with kind of joy-killing anxiety <laughs> and care in your life? How, how does that come? It, it comes when we learn how to cast those cares upon the Lord. That's humility. When we, when we take those burdens and cares on our own and try to deal with them ourselves, that's not humility, right? That's pride. Humility is when we, 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 we let go of these things and cast them upon the, the Lord who is, who is able to deal with them. Again, look at verse five. Jesus says, blessed are the humble for they will inherit the earth. Now again, this is paradoxical. 
Because we think that, that we're gonna, if we're, we're gonna get more the, the more, the more that we can just kind of grab, 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 you know, so that we can hoard, 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 and keep it to ourselves, we think, that, e- that equals more, right? We're gonna have more if we do that. If that's your philosophy of life, you're gonna end up with nothing. You end up with nothing that way. But when you learn that, you know what, life's kind of actually not about me. (laughs) It's kind of about God's glory and the good of others. Then, and, and when you when you when you learn how to how to how to how to how to, how to give instead of grab, you, you end up in the end with everything. You're, you'll inherit the earth because you're going to be a part of a new kingdom, a, a new heaven, and a new earth when Christ returns. Fourth, happy or flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus says in verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Righteousness here uh, means to, 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 to submit yourself to God's will and way for life, which is revealed through his word. Listen, do you hunger for holiness in your life? Do you hunger for holiness? Well, I know it's easy to spot the sins of others. That's easy. We're experts at that. But do you hunger and thirst for righteousness in your own life? You know, may our prayer as we approach this year be like that of an old Scottish Christian. Oh God, make me just as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. Blessed are those who who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For what what does Jesus say here in verse six? For they will be filled. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is gonna say, if this is your focus, right? If your focus in life is his kingdom and his righteousness, if that's your focus, God will take care of everything else. He says in, in Matthew 6, 33, later on in in this Sermon on the Mount, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. I love what H.P. Charles says about this. If you take care of God's business, God will take care of your business. And you know what? He's already provided for the greatest thing, the greatest thing, which is our salvation, right? Romans 8, 32, Paul says, He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. As we just take a few moments now just to reflect in God's presence at the beginning of a a new year, Let's think about what it let's think about what it means to be poor in spirit. Just to acknowledge our utter helplessness before the Lord.
Let's pray for a godly grief over the sins in our lives, that we would be broken by the things that break the heart of God. Let's pray for a godly humility in our lives, that God would make us more humble and gentle people this year. And let's pray for a hunger and a thirst for righteousness in our lives, that our focus would be his kingdom and his righteousness in 2020. And so, Lord, we we come before you now acknowledging our utter helplessness apart from you. We we come before you today um, asking that you would give us just genuine mourning and grief for the sins in our lives and that 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 godly grief would lead to repentance, to turning from these things. Lord, we pray for humility. We are such prideful people. We are so prideful. And it it runs so deep in all of our lives, in our sin nature. Oh God, how we pray that by the power of your spirit that you would deal with our pride. That you would make us more humble and more gentle with others as a result of that. And God, how we, we pray that, that you would give us a true hunger and thirst for righteousness. <clears throat> that we would get our, get our eyes off of the shortcomings and the sins of others. And that we would understand that the, the biggest issue that we face is the person that we look at in the mirror. that you would give us a true hunger and a thirst for holiness in in our own lives. So Lord, we, we give you this year and we pray that you would work in our lives as individuals. Father, how we pray that you would work in our church family this year, that you would form us as, as believers and that you would form us as a body to more and more reflect the image of Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.